Thank you so much for tuning into the podcast of Life Church in Perry, Georgia. Let's join Pastor Tim McLaughlin and go to the message. You know, I've, I've, I've been praying on this, praying over this, meditating on this for, for weeks. Before, before Resurrection Sunday, just, just kind of chomping at the bit. And it's one of those things like when, you, when God gives you something it just and it stirs in you, it's, it's kind of like a, I don't know, I'm one of these guys. Somebody told me one time, they said they hate leftovers. I was like, really? I love leftovers. I mean, like chili, spaghetti. A good beef stew. I mean, the longer it sits, the, the better it gets, right? And so it's kind of like this isn't a leftover message. It's just one of those things that's just been, it's just been sitting there getting more and more and more. I've got pages in my office of, oh, this is next, and you could add this, and the Lord keeps showing me other things. And I don't know where we're going to go from here, but I'm just looking forward to what God's getting ready to do. Amen. I remember um, you, most of you have heard this, and, and I won't bore you with all the details, but I remember... When I got saved, uh, Sheridan and I got saved in a little Southern Baptist church. And I'm not going to pick on the Baptists because I love my Baptist brothers. Come camp meeting. We're going to have two of those brothers are going to come. And, and, I, and I tell people all the time, I said, they can preach the paint off this wall. I mean, they'll, they'll, they'll rock this place. So I, I love my Baptist brothers. But I got saved in a, in a Baptist church in 1996. And what happened was is for, for two years after that, I just I continued to struggle. Uh, I, I'd go to church Sunday morning and, and I would repent for the, what I'd done the week before and, and uh, come back Wednesday night and I'd have to repent for what I did Monday night and then Sunday, you know, just, it was this repetitive motion for two years and, and what had happened is there was, they were teaching the word but there was no fire with it. And I was, I was just struggling. And then in September of 1998, I I had this radical encounter with God. I tell people all the time when, when I, I share my testimony, I said I had this Jacob experience. I've been doing a lot of studying on Jacob over the last several weeks. Uh, part of my classes that I'm taking right now, I'm actually getting ready to write a, a very large research paper on Jacob and how Jacob wrestled with God. And you would think, how in the world can you write a research paper on you know, essentially, I'm writing it on about 10 verses of Scripture. But when you begin to search all that out, and the, where he was at, and, you know, what the Fort Jabbok meant, and, and how he was at this particular mountain, and how he was separated from it, and you start breaking off. I mean, I just got so much stuff going on. But I had this Jacob experience. Because I was separated from my family. I was in Tennessee. All my family was up in Michigan. Um, I, was, I was in a place where... I knew God was wanting to do something, and, and I didn't really have a great enough understanding to know it. Uh, the church we had just come out of, that Baptist church, I, there was a great word, but it was almost like fire insurance, more than, than, than the gift of fire, the, the, what the Holy Ghost was wanting to do. And so all this was going on, and, and God and I began to go through this, this time of wrestling, this time of, of struggle, where I had to learn to give up some things in order for Him to put some things in me you know the, the bible talks about you can't put new wine 
into old wineskins. And the Lord said, I'm wanting to do something in you, but before I can put something in you, you need to, you need to change who you are. There needs to be a transformation in you. And so I went through this process in 1998, and, and I had this radical encounter with God. And when I came out of that encounter, God had completely done a work in my, my life. And if you don't believe me, you can, you can ask my wife, and she'll tell you uh, I was completely different. That Sunday that she came home, after God and I had had that wrestling match on Saturday night, and my wife came home, and I remember dropping uh, to my knees and looking at her and saying, Honey, I've asked God to forgive me, but now I need you to forgive me. And she looked at me, and she said, Where's my husband and who are you? I looked the same, but there was something different about me. God had done a work in me. And what had happened is after that encounter, I just, I wanted more of God. I wanted more of his word. I wanted more of his spirit. I wanted more of his church. I wanted to share more. I wanted to tell people about him. I wanted to do more. I wanted to be involved. And I wanted to see others want more. Ever since that time, September of 1998, my whole heart's desire is more of you. Fill me up, Lord. Give me more. Show me more. Teach me more. Help me to learn more so that I can give others more. I, I, I'm being honest with you. I'm not trying to pick on anybody. I'm just being real. When I hear people tell me things like, well, I needed to take a break from church. I, I look at people and I've made this statement. My pastor gave me this book years ago and, and my wife reminds me of this constantly. She always tries to find it on my bookshelf and I keep hiding it. How to Win Friends and Influence Others. Anybody ever read that book? Yeah, I've read it. I keep tossing it. I just, I don't know. But when people look at me and they say, well, I just need to take a break from church. I'm like, I'm glad Jesus didn't take a break. I just, I've never figured it out since 1998. And we were talking about this. I said, before I make this statement, I just confirm with me. I don't know of a time, even during COVID, to where we took more than a week off. We may have taken a week off because we were on vacation someplace uh, and, and, and there wasn't a church around and we didn't go to church for whatever, but one Sunday. I, I, I've never, I can't remember a time since 1998 that her and I have been together where we've taken more than one week off. I can't think of a time in a year where I've missed more than maybe two Sundays in a whole year. And I get people and they, they, they make statements like that. They say, well, I just needed some time off. Or I talk to people. I say, well, what are you reading? What are you studying? Are you in your word? Well, no, I, I just, you know, I, I don't really have a reading plan. And, you know, uh, I don't really have a prayer uh, process that I go through. It's it just, you know, I pray in, in the shower. or I, I'll pray when I'm driving down the road or, you know. I had somebody get mad because I didn't send them the morning scripture one time. They said, listen, I need that word. I'm like, brother, if that's all you're dependent on is that word, you got bigger problems. You need to be in your word. So ever since this time, I've just wanted more. More of God. More of his people. More of his word. More of his spirit. 
In 2000, I received the baptism of the Holy Spirit with the evidence of speaking in other tongues. I was so fired up when I received the baptism of the Holy Spirit that, that I could I just couldn't stop. I just there was something in me like a raging inferno that I just wanted to go and, and tell everybody about my experience. When I say this, I say this with all respect because in September of 1998, God delivered me from a 20-year substance abuse problem. But when I received the baptism of the Holy Spirit, I received a high that could not be purchased, could not be drank, and could not be smoked. I received a high that, that, that just, I, I wanted to, to share it with everybody and tell everybody about what God was doing in my life. It was a high that could not be purchased, but I learned could wear off. In 2001, I, I started preaching. I started preaching on the streets. I got my start. I, bro I cut my teeth in evangelism. And I didn't have a clue. I hadn't been to Bible school. I hadn't been to seminary. I, I just I was going out to the street. I'd give me one or two scriptures. I'd have me a couple tracks. And I'd go out and I would just start talking to people. Now, just let's just be honest and be nice. I'll let you be honest, but you got to be nice. Do I look like a preacher? All right. I would I would walk down alleyways and people would look at me and they're like, you know, they, they'd start. I'm like, I'm not the law. I look more like a cop than I do a preacher in a lot of places. OK. And, and they would like panic. I'm like, no, no, I'm, I'm not a cop. I'm not a cop. I'm a minister. And I would just start sharing people. And, and I'm being honest. I, I would walk up to people that were they were in the middle of doing drugs. And I would just walk up. and say, I just want to talk to you. I'm not trying to I'm not trying to do anything. I'm not I'm not going to call anybody. Let me and I would just start sharing my testimony. And God would begin to move through me and this this fire that was in me that, that was consuming me begin to pour out on them. And I saw people getting saved. I, I didn't have a three point sermon. I didn't have some I wasn't, you know, some theologian that had all this knowledge. I just I know what God had done in my life. And I started telling people about what God had done in my life. And I said, and he could do it in you. And they would start weeping. They'd say, will he do it? I said, yes, just ask. Sitting there with a needle in their arm. And they would pull it out. And they would ask Jesus Christ to come into their heart. I would put them on a bus and send them off to a teen challenge program. And a year later, they would come back and they would tell me, Pastor Tim, thank you so much for, what you, for, for, for introducing me to Jesus. And that wasn't everybody. Like I said, it was a high that I, I, I couldn't purchase, but it, it would wear off because during all this street ministry, during all this preaching in churches, during all this going into the jails and talking to people, I mean, I was going and preaching to family members up in Michigan that every time I'd go, I've still got a sister up there. Every time she sees me, she likes to crack jokes. She calls me the golden child. And she, it's not a compliment the way she says it, I promise you that. But they like to, to, to rip me everywhere I went, every person I talked to, I just I, I would like to share Jesus. I told you I love to go to Cracker Barrel, any restaurant really, I, I like to eat, and, and just talk to the waitresses and the waiters and you know get to know their names so I can talk to them about Jesus. I just want to let people see the fire inside of me. But how many of you have ever suffered rejection? You're trying to share your faith and somebody cuts you down. Trying to tell somebody and they just... 
You know, we just went out a couple weeks ago and knocked on doors, and I heard some of them say, you know, people would look at them and say, don't even bother. Get out of my yard. Get away from my door. I mean, we, we, we struggle with rejection. As, as a pastor of a church, we struggle with rejection. It's that we've got to keep ourselves built up. So I realized as after I got baptized in the Holy Spirit, as I was out doing all this, the Spirit of God in me began to dissipate. That fire that I initially received began to die down. I was giving out in my preaching and my teaching, but I was also dealing with all this rejection. I shared with you last week three battles that we can't afford to lose. First, we need to learn from the place of defeat. When you, when you make a mistake, when you stumble, when you fall, I was talking to someone the other day, you know, part of our hope for life that we do, which is our, the recovery program that, that I started in 2004, is the first book we do is we call, it's called Insight. Because you've got to recognize that you have a life-controlling problem. There's a lot of people that are struggling don't even realize they have a problem. Then the second thing we do is once you realize that you have a problem and you admit it, is then we're going to walk you through steps of how to deal with those problems. The Bible says you walk out your salvation with fear and trembling. So there's these process that you have to go through. Then the third thing we do is overcoming emotions that destroy because what happens is all these emotions that you have been uh, pushing down and suppressing for all the years that you've been dealing with that, whether it was food, whether it was alcohol, whether it was drugs, whether it was pornography, whatever it was, you've been suppressing those feelings. Now all those feelings are coming back up and you've got to learn to deal with those things. And then the fourth thing we do is free to grow. Now that you've recognized it, now that you've asked Jesus to come into your heart and you're walking out your salvation, now that you're learning how to deal with your emotions, then all of a sudden you're, everything's going good and you stumble. Something happens and you make a mistake. Falling is only failing if you don't get back up. Because we all miss it. You find me one person in this place or any place that says, I've never missed it since the day I got saved, and I'm going to show you a person that just missed it. We've all missed it. We've all made mistakes. So we have to learn from the place of defeat. Then we need to look from the place of defiance. What are those things that are in us that are fighting where our flesh is constantly warring against our spirit? Because if, if those are the areas of going to church, of getting up in the morning to go to church, of getting into your Bible in the morning, of finding a prayer closet, if those are the things that, that bother your spirit, man, that'd be the first place I'd start. People tell me, they say, well, I, I just, I have a hard time getting up in the morning. Set your alarm clock on the other side of the room. I've even done this. Take your cell phone if that's your alarm, and put it under your bed. You've got to get out of bed. You've got to get on your knees to reach down there. Well, while you're down there, why don't you just start praying? For years, I set my Bible right next to my placemat at the dining room table. I mean, that's where I sat to eat breakfast every morning. So while I was eating natural food, the spiritual bread was sitting right there. I went ahead and read my Bible. I did that for years. 
Find those areas in your life where your fleshly man is trying to defy your spirit man and begin to address those issues. And then the third area is listen to the place of defilement. Who are you listening to? Pastor Josiah said it. Are you listening to the doctor's report? Are you listening to your friends? Are you listening to the news? What dictates your mood? What dictates how you live your life? And if it's not the Word of God, if it's not the presence of God, if it's not the Spirit of God, then you need to listen to what the Spirit's saying and quit listening to what everybody else is telling you. Understand that when we win these three battles by follow-through, that's what we talked about last week, you got to follow through. How, how do you follow through? How can you win these battles and follow through? Go with me to 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 6. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 6. If you've got it, would you stand for the reading of God's Word? I've let y'all get a little lazy. I haven't done that a whole lot. I just don't want you to get tired. I'm going to read this first out of the New King James. 2 Timothy 1.6 It says, Therefore, I remind you to stir up the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of hands. Now, stay right there, and if you don't have this translation, look at the screen. This is out of the ESV. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of hands. Father, I pray that again you give me the boldness and the humility, the clearness of speech, and the direction of the Holy Spirit to do what you've laid on my heart to do and be with each and every one that's here this morning that they would have ears to hear, eyes to see, and a heart to receive what the Spirit of the Lord would say to them today. And Lord, may their prayer be, have your way in me. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. 2 Timothy 1.6 in the English Standard Version of the Bible says, For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of hands. Now, I always, I've preached out of the New King James translation for years. People always ask me, why do you preach out of the New King James? I, I was an evangelist for years. And so if I went into these die-hard King James churches, they would let me slide because at least I had King James in it, so it was New King James. And then if I went to these modern churches where they were maybe in the New Living or the NIV, they would still allow me to preach from the New King James. So I just kind of got used to preaching from the New King James, and, and that's where a lot of my scriptures come from. But I enjoy reading a lot of other translations. In my chronological Bibles that I read all the time, I've got a New King James, I've got a New Living, I've got an ESV, I've got an NIV. And so I'm always switching it up and things that I can read because sometimes one will speak a little bit clearer than another. For those of you that are diehard King James, it's, it's okay, I want to help you this morning. I don't mean that as a joke, I'm being honest. 
Stanley Horton, Dr. Stanley Horton. How many King James people are here? You're King James. Yeah, I knew it. I knew it. So I'm not picking on anybody. Dr. Stanley Horton, Pentecostal theologian, Assembly of God minister, King James preacher, in his New Testament commentary, made this statement. The King James says this, but I think it's better understood this way. Fan into flame. To describe the passage in 2 Timothy 1.6. 2 Timothy. This is a letter written to Timothy, a student of the Apostle Paul's and a disciple of Christ. Understanding some things about Timothy, Timothy was a son of a Greek father and a Jewish mother. Now, we don't know this to be fact because we can't find it in any scripture or any uh, historical books, but understanding that Timothy's father was Greek, we can assume that he was probably also an unbeliever. And the fact that Timothy's mother was Jewish, we can understand that she was probably not living for God when she married this Greek because the Old Testament was very clear about not marrying somebody that was not a believer, somebody outside of, of the 12 tribes. So you've got an unbelieving father, and then you've got a mother that was not living for the Lord, and then somewhere along the way, something began to change. Somewhere along the way, we know that Timothy's mother got saved. 2 Timothy 1.5 says, When I call to remembrance the genuine faith that is in you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. Mom finally got it. Then Paul says this, I am persuaded that it's also in you. Have you ever just met somebody and we can be very spiritual if you want to about it and say, you know, I had discernment. Or you can just meet someone and you can just say, I'm pretty persuaded that that person's right. I mean, if you talk to someone from the South, it doesn't take long to be persuaded that they're from the South. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> Most of my family from my stepdad's side are from Alabama. There, there are some people around the country, Louisiana being one of those and Alabama being another one of those, that I can just, I can just talk to them for about 10 minutes and I can tell you that you're from Alabama, aren't you? Well, how do you know? All right. So you, you talk to some people, and, and it may not be, even be an accent. Maybe you're just talking about something and, and, and you can just by the things that they like or their expressions they use or, or what, that they can persuade you to believe something. Now, I went to dinner a week or so ago with the Luke family. And I'm going to tell you a little bit of something that Brad is an electrician and he really loves what he does and he works over at the paper factory as an electrician and he knows a lot about it. And as he talked, I just sat there going, 
And then I looked over at his wife, Christine. She goes, because that's what they do. Because he's passionate about it. And I was persuaded that that's what he likes. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. But my question is this. When people talk to you, do they get persuaded that you're a follower of Christ? Can you persuade people in conversation that you are a Christian? Or do you have to have a t-shirt on or a bumper sticker or a fish decal that says? I love that commercial, the guy that sells the pillows, and he makes sure to wear the cross on the outside of his, his shirt to kind of let everybody know. And that's all right. I mean, at least he's on television and the cross is being seen and that's good. My question is, how many, how many people really wear collared shirts with the necklace on the outside of it? Not very many. Pastor Osai doesn't even wear a collar shirt with the necklace, only a t-shirt with it on the outside of it. So he even knows. So when that guy pulls that out, I'm like, who are you trying to persuade? Right? How do we live our lives? So there was something in here where Timothy's ta Paul's talking to Timothy, rather, and he says, I'm persuaded that the faith that your grandmother had and the faith that your mother had is now in you. And Paul knew something about Timothy because of the time that he had spent with Timothy. This letter is written somewhere around 67 AD, and it's written during time where Nero was the emperor of Rome. Nero was trying to do everything within his power to eliminate followers of Jesus. He would have them taken captive and brought to Rome, and he would put them in the Colosseum and let lions and gladiators destroy them. He would take some of them, and he would, he would spear them and hold them up and cover them in tar and light them on fire for his parties to be, to be streetlights. He was doing everything within his power to try to eliminate the Christian faith. And yet Paul's writing a letter to Timothy, this young preacher. He said, but I'm persuaded you got the goods. Timothy was traveling with Paul. He was a co-writer of many of his letters. During this time of Nero, many people were trying to hide their faith because of persecution and imprisonment and everything that I mentioned to you. Timothy would have been with the Apostle Paul during his first imprisonment. Philemon 1.1 says, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother. So Paul's sitting in jail writing this letter, and he says, I'm writing this to you, Paul, and Timothy's sitting right here next to me in jail. There are a lot of people that want to be followers of Christ when it's comfortable. But then as soon as it gets uncomfortable or as soon as it gets dangerous, hey, stop the buggy and let me out. I meet, I meet Christians all the time, and, and like I said, boy, they've got a great T-shirt collection, and they got the nice cross necklace and the good fish thing on there and, and, and all of that. But then you ask them, hey, let's go do some street ministry or let's tell somebody, let's witness to this guy over here. And they're like, hey, uh, that's just not my calling, bud, but I've got your back. I'm like, yeah, you're way back. Timothy was so close that he was sitting right next to Paul while he was in jail. He said, if you're going to preach, I'll stand right there next to you. I'm going to scotch with you. Everybody know what that means? I'm going to scotch with you? 
You don't know that. I don't think, maybe that's a Yankee term or something. You know, sometimes I need somebody to scotch with me, somebody to, 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 to agree with me. You know, a lot of times when I'm praying for people, I'll, I'll grab someone else and say, hey, you come up. I need you to scotch with me. Where two are agreeing is touching anything. So Timothy says, listen, I, I'm going to scotch with you, Paul. Whatever you're going to do, I'm going to do. Remember Jonathan in the Old Testament, 1 Samuel? He looks at his armor bearer. He says, we got one sword between us, and this is what we're going to do. We're going to climb up on this cliff right here. And if those guys look at us and say, you better run, or we're going to come down there, well, we're going to take off because that's not of God. But if they say to us, hey, come on up here, let's see what you got, we're going to take that from God. Now, if I'm reading that story, I'm thinking it differently. If you're saying, come to me, I'm thinking, that ain't good. You're a little too cocky. But Jonathan said, if they say, come to him, we're going to take that as a sign from God and we're going. And the armor bearer said, I got your back. Whatever you want to do, I'm going to do it with you. I'm going to scotch with you. So Timothy's scotching with Paul. He says, he says I I'll sit right here with you in jail and preach the gospel. But then somewhere along the line, Timothy got sick. And he had to return home from the missionary journey. Philippians chapter 2, 25 through 27 says, Yet I consider it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow co-worker, and fellow soldier, but your messenger... Your messenger talking about Timothy and the one who ministered to my need since he was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. For indeed, he was sick almost to death. But God had mercy on him and not only him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. So somewhere along the line, Timothy gets sick and he has to return home. And Paul's writing this letter and he calls him, he, he calls him a messenger. Your messenger. The one that I've sent to minister to you. I couldn't do it because I was sitting in jail. I couldn't do it because God had me someplace else. But I sent Timothy to you to preach in spite of Nero. Because of the faith that he had because of his mother and grandmother. Paul goes on and he says in 1 Timothy 5.23, he says, no longer only drink water, but use a little wine for your stomach's sake and your frequent infirmities. Don't be, learn from a fool. Write that down in your notes. That's, that's, that's a good phrase. Learn from a fool. Jim Nichols was the director of the Teen Challenge Center over in Princeton, West Virginia, when I first started Teen Challenge back in 2009, Jim was one of the first people I ever met to, uh, went over to, and Jim had been doing Teen Challenge for about 20 years up to that point. And Jim would tell me all the time when I'd go over there to talk to him about how to open up a Teen Challenge and what I was supposed to do, and he'd, he'd use that phrase, he said, learn from a fool. In other words, if you'll listen to me, you won't make the same mistake that I made, Right? I tell my son that all the time. He asks me questions. My son and daughter-in-law just bought their first house, and he'll call me. I said, son, let me help you learn from a fool. Don't make the same dumb mistake that your dad made. Right? So right here, I'm going to help you learn from a fool. Right here in 1 Timothy 5.23 is not a license for you to drink. Thank you. I was one of those that tried to do that. I said, well, Paul told Timothy a little wine's good for the stomach, so, I mean, it's okay to drink. That's not 
what he's saying. The wine back then was different. I was actually talking to a, a Jewish scholar here not too long ago, and he was talking about, he said, you know, the wine over there, he said, even though it may have been fermented, it's not like the wine we have today. And it was, it was kind of salty. They would put salt in it because it was more uh, medicinal than it was. Yeah, thank you very much. All right. Thanks for that word. I was, I was trying to think of it. Yeah. yeah. And so Paul's telling me, he says, listen, he said, the, wine, the, the water over here is not all that good and, and your stomach's upset and you keep getting sick and maybe because it's because of nerves, because of all that you're doing. So, so get a little bit of that wine that'll help calm your nerves and your stomach to do what you need to do. So Paul's in prison. He's in Rome. He's facing the prospect of execution and he desires his young minister, Timothy, to join him. 2 Timothy 4.9, he says, Be diligent to come to me quickly. For Demas has forsaken me, having loved the present world. That's where a lot of people are at right there. I've got a book on my bookshelf. It's a study that Doug Jones from Rainbow Bible Training Center did years ago. And it's called In Search for Timothy. I believe that every minister is looking for a Timothy. Someone that they can pass some things on to. I've had a pastor ever since I got saved, and I still have a pastor today. I met and went and met with a man this week. I said, my both of my pastors really, uh, one of my pastors resides in Tennessee. The other one can't make his decision between Tennessee and Africa, so I can't hardly get a hold of him. And I need someone that I can reach out and get a hold of to minister and speak to me and correct some things in my life. I said, I'm asking you, would you consider being such a person as that? And with tears in his eyes and a grin on his face, he says, he says, I love Timothy's. Now, he wasn't talking about me because my name's Tim. He was just saying, I'm loving people that are willing, willing to be corrected, Willing to be discipled, willing to be ministered to. Timothy was willing. Demas was, for, was not. Demas had forsaken Paul. It got a little hot, a little complicated. Demas took off. But Paul asked Timothy, he says, he says, I diligently need you to come to me quickly. Have you ever felt like everything is against you? I got a sure. Have you ever felt like everything's against you? All right, praise God. I'm glad it's just not me. Timothy has this going on in his life where he's, man, I've been in prison with you. I've been shipwrecked with you. i gotten sick because of following you. Nero's wanting to kill me. And yet, you want me to come to you while you're in jail in Rome. No wonder the brother needed a little Pepto. I mean, he was, he was tore up. And he said, yeah, but, but I'm, I'm going to do this. Seems like everything's against me, but, but I know Paul's got my best interests at heart. And that's why Paul was able to write this letter. He says, for this reason, for this reason right here, when it looks like the world has gone crazy, when it looks like everybody's in chaos, when it looks like all heck is breaking loose, Paul says, Timothy, for this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of hands. 
quickly, this reminds me of a, a story of Pastor Brian Jarrett. Pastor Brian Jarrett started with a small church, not much bigger than this church in Arkansas. And Brian Jarrett grew that church. They were running multiple services. They were getting ready to build a new building. It was busting at the seams. And the Lord spoke to him and, and told him he was getting ready to leave there. And, and kind of like we did when we were getting ready to leave Teen Challenge, you know, he went kicking and screaming, but he followed God. And now he's in Texas. He's got a church just outside of Dallas. It's a, it's a mega church, several thousands of people. He's got just all kinds of stuff. But when Brian Jarrett was a, a young evangelist, he was the youngest person to ever preach at the General Council of the Assemblies of God. Now, I preach in front of a lot of people, and I've preached in front of some ministers. I can't imagine preaching in front of like 30,000 ministers. You better know your stuff. And Brian Jarrett was about 24 years old, and he was getting ready to preach in front of all these ministers. And the then General Council President Thomas Trask leaned over and looked at Brian. He said, Brian, are you ready? And Brian Jarrett leaned over at Thomas Trask. He said, I was born for this night. Brian got up and he began to preach. And while he was preaching, he shared this story. He says, when I was a little kid, I grew up with a single mother and we had to live with my grandparents. And I related to Brian. And he said, they lived in a little cabin. They didn't have a whole lot of money. And he said, so in the wintertime in Arkansas, when it would get cold, he said the only thing that heated the house was a little potbelly stove that sat right in the middle of the kitchen. That's where my grandmother cooked, and that's what heated the house. He said, so in the wintertime, I would make my pallet right next to the, hot, the, the, the potbelly stove. And he said, so before I would go to bed in my sleeping bag on my pallet, Grandpa would stock a bunch of wood into the, the stove, and it would be nice and hot. And he said, I'd be on top of my sleeping bag because it was so hot and everybody would go to bed. But somewhere through the middle of the night, the fire would begin to die down. And he said, I would find my way underneath my sleeping bag. And many times with it pulled up over my head because it was so cold. He said, but something along the line, he said, I would wake up in the morning and I would start sweating in that sleeping bag and I'd get up and, and amazingly, the fire was going. He said, I never asked questions. I was just grateful to have the hot stove and the food that was being cooked on it. He said, but one morning I was in my sleeping bag and I heard something clank. And I pulled my head out and it was my grandmother down on one knee reaching into the stove with some kindling. And he said, I looked over at it and said, Graham, what are you doing? Well, Brian, I'm getting ready to start the fire so you can be warm and so I can cook your breakfast. And he said, he looked over at the stove. He said, well, Grandma, the fire's out. She said, Brian, put your hand on the side of the stove. And he put his hand on it. And he said, it's cold. She said, Brian. She says, come here, Brian. Brian walked over and he knelt down next to his grandmother. She said, now watch. And she stuck her face down next to the, the door. And he said, when she blew you saw this glow. She said, Brian, you try it. Brian stuck his face in there and he <sighs> saw this ember. She said, now hand me some of that kindling. Stuck that kindling in there. She said, now together, Brian, you and I, let's blow. <sighs> Fire. He said, within minutes, it was warm in the room. 
what they have to do? They had to fan into flame. They had to fan into flame. They had to take that which had died out and they had to fan it back into a flame. You see, this is the same thing that was true with Timothy. Through all of his sickness, through all of his imprisonment, through everything that Timothy was doing, his, his, the embers had begun to die out. I believe that's where the church today is at. I believe the church today, the big C church that you're a part of, has died out. We've let politics, we've allowed crisis, we've allowed the, the, the draw for large congregations to dampen the fire. But I believe this because the Lord spoke this to me in 2019. There's still a, there's still a remnant. There's still an ember. And he's just looking for some people that will fan into flame. I believe there are many here today that have allowed their fire for God, their fire for the church, their witnessing to die down. I know you've got to work. I know you've got a job. I know you've got responsibilities. I know that you've got yard work to take care of. I, I understand all the things that goes on. I've got a yard to mow. I've got things to take care of. I know you think I'm a preacher, and yeah, but you only work two days a week. Come hang out with me for a while. But if we don't start going outside the church doing outreach, they're not just going to magically appear. If we don't start showing up for prayer meetings, revival's never going to come. If we don't start doing everything we need to do to be discipled, it's never going to happen. It's time to fan into flame. Some of you haven't been on fire since the day you got saved. Some of you have forgot what it's like to be on fire for the things of God. Some of you have forgot what it's like to lay in the presence of the Lord. Man, I've got so many more things I wanted to get to today, but last year at camp meeting, we had 11 people make a decision for Jesus Christ. We had three follow the Lord, or rather be baptized in the Holy Spirit, and then we had, I think, six after that follow the Lord in water baptism. So we had 11 saved, three baptized in the Holy Ghost, and 11 followed them in uh, water baptism, or six followed them in water baptism. My question this morning is this, with you sitting right here. How many of you were here last year at camp meeting and said, Pastor, I was one of those that got saved, one of those that got baptized in water, or one of those that got baptized in the Holy Ghost? One. See, that's the problem with the church. That's the problem with church organizations. I don't care if you're Church of God, Assembly of God, Baptist, Methodist, it's all the same. Every year they're going to ask for a report. How many people got saved? How big's your congregation? How much money came in through tithes? How many followed the Lord in water baptism? The question we need to be asking is how many got saved last year that's still in the church this year fanning the flame? 
Some of you have been saved so long, you can't remember the last time you were on fire. I know many were excited last year when we talked about camp meeting, but it didn't take long for some to, Pastor, I'm tired. I'm wore out. And I can tell you stories about all the revivals I've been in. I've told you most of them. I've told you about 60 days of revival. I've told you about all that stuff. But until you experience it for yourself, I'll never forget. We were talking about this this week. The first time my wife and I ever went to the ramp, our kids were, I don't know, eight, nine, maybe something like that. And we were wanting to go to the ramp and and, and so we told some people in our church we were going to the ramp and they said, they said, well, we would like to go, but our parents won't take us. We're like, well, you can ride with us. So we go down to Chattanooga, to the convention center. Any of y'all been in that convention center in Chattanooga, the big convention center, the Marriott? I mean, that's, those are big rooms. They, they, they told us they were expecting like 30 or 40,000 people to show up at, at ramp Karen Wheaton Ministries so we walk in I'm like man that, that, I don't know how they're going to fit everybody in there I've been in some meetings how they're going to get it we walked into the room and there's not a chair in the place they got a big stage up front they got a sound booth in the back and it's a concrete floor I looked at my wife I said ain't happening honey I cannot sit on a concrete floor for an hour while they preach she said, well, stand over there. She goes, I'm going to go sit with the kids. So they find them a place on the concrete, and they sat. We were there like an hour and a half before service started. Sitting, they're sitting on the concrete. I'm, sitting, I'm standing in the back. After about an hour, I, I'm, I'm getting tired of standing. So I finally walk over, and I sit down. Well, about that time, service starts. Man. It was like somebody poured a gas all over that place and lit a match it just those kids they were jumping they were shouting they were crying they were in the altars two hours later two hours later the worship stopped and the preaching started two and a half hours later Damon Thompson gave an altar call four and a half hours of being on concrete and nobody left. Nobody was tired. Nobody was upset. They told us to go to lunch, and two hours later, they came back. And some people were bringing people from the restaurant they went to lunch at because they were fanned into flame. They were on fire for God. I'm so excited about what God's getting ready to do during our camp meeting. We started praying on Thursday night. We continue our prayer night in the mornings. I believe God's wanting to do something mighty in this place. But you got to be one of those that are willing to say, Lord, use me. Consume my life, Lord. Have your way in me. I'm going to ask Don and whoever else he's got. They're going to pass out an envelope. Should have done this earlier. I'm sorry. I get a little excited.
Thank you so much for listening to the podcast of Life Church. If you are looking for a home church, please visit us at 100 Todd Road in Perry, Georgia, or check out our website at lifechurchga.com.